Christians should never judge those outside of the church. This is true. But as we often forget, Christians should judge those inside the church. Welcome to Daily Gospel, equipping you to know God through His Word and His Son, Jesus Christ. My name is Keith, this is Brandon, and we are pastors here in Santa Cruz, California at Gospel Community Church. Like, subscribe, comment, get the gospel out there, and gee golly, start judging people. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. First Corinthians 5.12. There you go. Yep, exactly. We'll get there, we'll get there. Yes, Interesting passage. Yes, we will. So Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, a book about very messed up group of people. Very messed up church, yeah. Church. Yep. Paul started this church. Yep. He's it, very it, frustrated it, with it them. It blows my mind that um, he um, continually calls them, how messed up you see these people. He's still using the titles brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. It's amazing that how bad they are that the Galatians are like worse because <laughs> yeah. they're, they're heresy. <laughs> it's great. We, we will, we'll get there soon enough. The theme of this book as you said, gospel applied. Right. So how does the gospel impact all of these different areas of life and church? And um, yeah, I think we're going to see some really great stuff. So we've seen that the, the first sections that we saw were chapters one through two, foundations in the gospel. Mm-hmm. And then chapters three and four, we saw factions in the church. I love this. So that's a kind of a big theme throughout. All the alliterations. And today we're going to, yeah, today we're going to get in chapters five through seven, fornication and marriage. Yep. And we'll get into, I think, chapters eight through 10 as well, food mm-hmm. and freedom in Christ. Yep. It's going to be great. Freedom. I like those things. Food and freedom. Love that's it. right. Yep. It's like a 4th of July party <laughs> in the book of First Corinthians. So... <laughs> Chapter 5, I think, is where we're at, right? Oh, I got to say this first, though. One of the big problems that we're going to see in this book, which I didn't really talk about last time because it wasn't as pressing for that section, mm-hmm. one of the big problems we see in terms of their false beliefs that Paul's trying to correct is what many people call an over-realized eschatology. Okay. And that's a term that people might just go, what, what is that talking about? I don't know any of those words. Well, I know over. I, um, but what is, what is it talking about? <laughs> well, eschatology would be your beliefs about the end times, mm-hmm. right? The end or how God makes all things new and something being oh, like a realized eschatology, something being realized that's in the end times would be something like, well, in the end, God's going to forgive us, right? Yeah, so God we will return one day. So that like forgiveness of sins is already realized today. It's already real today. Mm-hmm. So I'm forgiven of sins oh, right now, right? So there's things that are about the eschatology, about, about the end of, of the story, that are already realized now. Like I can say I'm a son of God now, I'm adopted into his family now. But what some people would do is they would say, well, then I'm also resurrected now. Mm -hmm. I'm also glorified now. I'm already like mature in Christ. Um, And so thinking about the eschaton, the, the final age, and how things work then and trying to apply it now can lead you to some huge dangers right. if you do it incorrectly, right. if it's over-realized. Right. It's also spoken of very often as the already and not yet distinction. Mm-hmm. So I am already holy in Christ, mm-hmm. but I'm not yet s- sinless in practice. Right. right? Like I'm already seen by God in that way, but in my life I still sin. Right. So if you if you say because God sees me as righteous, I, I can't sin, well, you're going to start doing some terrible stuff. At a middle school kid tell me that one time oh wow yeah so he, he would have fit in well here yeah yeah 
So, so this is this is a problem, um, and and they would say things like, "Well, the body doesn't matter because it's earthly, so you can in, indulge in sexual morality, or you can indulge in this or that sin, and it's just going to be burned up and taken away." So, it's misunderstanding how the resurrection applies to the here and now. Right. And so, Paul's doing a lot of correction of that over-realized eschatology. It's a great phrase. You can just you can just insert that in a conversation sometime. Just casually with someone, if you're if you're a listener, right? If people think you're super smart, you'd be like, yeah. "I just really feel like you have an over-realized eschatology." I feel like you have an over-realized sense of racism in this country. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah, that could be it too. Yeah. Uh, let's get into the text, chapter five. So, in chapters five and six, we're going to see three different problems present themselves. Um, we're going to see a situation of a man sleeping with his mother-in-law. Not a good plan. That that's a problem. Yeah. We're going to see believers suing other believers. Also not good. And we're going to see people thinking they can engage in fornication. Also not good. So just over three. It's pretty bad. So let's look at the first problem. This is in chapter five, verse one. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans for a man has his father's wife. So we have to assume what's happening here just because we don't want to think of the alternative, is that this guy is sleeping with his stepmom. Mm-hmm. Right? It's just the phrasing of it, father's wife. If it was his mother, it would just say mother. Yeah. So it seems to be you know, his father remarried, and now this guy is having an affair with his stepmom, and he's saying that you're like proud of this. Mm-hmm. Right? Like This is great. Let's celebrate it. Let's have a party and say how great these two, two are. Yeah because they're so free in Christ or something bizarre. Right. And he's saying, you should be mourning for this. Right. Like, how are you engaging and celebrating this when you should be mourning it? And so he, he talks about how you're to deal with this. In verse two, he says, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Hmm. So someone who engages in this kind of gross sexual morality that's so obviously wrong and so extremely wrong, that person should be removed immediately. Right. So it makes us think back to Matthew 18, this process we have of church discipline, mm-hmm. which is which is so helpful, right? Go and speak to the person, and then if they don't listen, bring one or two others. If they don't still don't listen, tell it to the church, and the church removes them. Right. But there are circumstances that are so egregious, so extreme, that you have to remove them immediately. Wasn't there a, a shooting a while back where the guy claimed to be part of a Southern Baptist church, and so the church was like immediately excommunicated him. Yeah, like, like you're out. After, yeah. 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 So there's not like, well, let's all go and talk to him and plead with him to to not do more school shootings or terrorist acts. You know, yeah. it was no yeah. okay. There's something that something's that you just say this is a disgrace to the church. It's so obviously wrong. All right. Um, so look at verse five. He says, "You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh." so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Mm-hmm. So the, you're giving him to Satan. That means you're allowing him to enter into the full condemnation or consequences of his sin. That's what I believe, at least. And he's saying that this is so that he can be saved. Exactly, verse 5. Yeah, yeah let, let him, to remove from him the restraints, put, say you're out of the church, go and live that kind of a lifestyle and pray that he would be saved. This yeah. all has a positive um, purpose to it. Right. It's restorative. It's that the idea is to, that you want to restore this person. And so he says, verse six, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Mm-hmm. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. So this mm-hmm. picture of leavened, leaven is off, often a picture of sin in the Bible. But he says here, for he applies the gospel, right? For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. 
Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Mm-hmm. He's saying, if you have been rescued by Christ and he has brought you from the realm of darkness and disobedience into life, then you have to engage in a lifestyle that celebrates those kinds of things. Right. You can't be you can't be celebrating things that are are awful mm-hmm. or approving of things that are awful or just turning your your you know gaze away and saying ah oh, just ignore that in the church. Right. You have to purify the church. Mm-hmm. Yep. So we're not again. Just to be clear, we're not talking about you have a uh, you know you say something bad or you have a bad thought or you you know have some sin you're struggling with that therefore you should be excommunicated over. Mm-hmm. No one thinks that. Right. No, like no one that I've ever heard of. No one's serious. Yeah. Um, but what we're talking about here is if there is sin in your life that is unrepentant and proud and all that, then you need to be removed from the church. Yeah. It's very clear. I mean, Paul's basic point is really simple. Don't rejoice in sin. Yeah. <laughs> if something's simple, you have freedom in Christ, but that doesn't mean rejoice and endorse sin. And so. don't tolerate sin in the midst of the church. For yeah. as much as we t- we are a tolerant culture yeah. in America today, right? We talk a lot about tolerance. Um, of course, you should love those who are unbelievers mm-hmm. who engage in these sins. But the way you love a believer is by speaking truth to them and eventually removing them from the church. Mm-hmm. So he says that in here. He's like, I'm not telling you to not associate with people in the world that are sinful because then you'd have to go outside the church. But he says, but verse 12, what have I to do with judging outsiders? That's God's responsibility is what he's saying. Right. But he says, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Mm-hmm. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Strong words. So don't worry about correcting everyone in the world over their sins. Um, don't even when you evangelize someone, don't be like, wow, you're a bad person. This like just, just trying to correct their behavior. It's a silly way to engage with somebody. Right. But in the church, we do need to have a ethical standard and stick to it and show the world that life in Christ, life under the gospel is one that leads to an ethical change. Yeah. And it's ultimately an unloving thing for people who are members of the same church who have clearly committed their lives to live for one another in one local body for them not to call each other's sin out when they, when it is seen, right? That's a, yeah. that's a totally unloving thing to do. And it's a abdication of your responsibility of love to your brother or sister. You know? Yeah. So absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Well, let's get into chapter six a little bit. We see a second problem here, which is verse problems. one, more, more problems. problems. Wow. Oh yeah. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? So this is the problem, right? They're suing each other and they're going to public court and they're saying, he owes me money, right? He brought my lawnmower and it's broken now and I want my, whatever stupid things that they could. He's, he's like, can you not settle this yourselves? Lawnmowers, huh? Yeah, yeah. lawnmowers. Okay. Definitely yeah. uh, not anachronistic. No. Verse two, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? So he's going to the resurrection. He's saying, someday you're going to judge the world. Mm. You don't think you can deal with this stupid little case you have here? Lawnmower. Verse three, three, do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertain to this life? So this is a proper application of resurrection truth, right? Of the gospel is to say, no, one day God's expecting this of us. Mm-hmm. We have to be able to deal with this. We have to show the world what kind of people we are, yeah. that we can deal with our issues. Um, so, so verse five, he says, I say this to your shame. Can it be there's not no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? <laughs> <laughs> and that's, I mean, it's sad to say it's very often true in the church today. 
People just won't deal with issues. They cover it up. They ignore it. And as church leaders, we should be calling people out. You mm-hmm. can't leave things unresolved. Or if you have an issue, you can't be going to court You know, in yeah. front of unbelievers. you got to deal with these things. So this is not a call to ignore problems. It's a call for the church to have wisdom in helping people to solve disputes that they might have. That's that's the job of us as the community of Christ, yep. right? Verse verse six. But brother goes to law against brother, and not before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. So you're cutthroat going after each other over things that are not that important. It would be better for you just to not right. not win. Right. And so he's he's showing them that, and he goes on in verses 9 and following to say, don't you understand who you are? You're going to inherit God's kingdom. You used to be a sinful person. You used to be a bad person. But, verse 11, he says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified mm-hmm. in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. I mean, that should settle everything. If you have been given that status mm-hmm. as a gift by God, if you've been redeemed from that, you cannot engage in these things right. and, and ignore these sorts of problems or try to solve them with unbelievers. So, I think I think we covered that sufficiently. Yes. But then we see uh, another problem, verse 12. All things are helpful for me, but not all things oh, sorry, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Right. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. So this is a t- tough passage. So what what seems to be happening here is there is a quote. So in ESV it puts that in quotes the um, all things are lawful for me is in quotes. And I think that's probably a good way to understand this is a common saying. This is like a truism that they have that they would use. And maybe it came from Paul. Maybe he's the one who said this. Because Paul does say stuff like this in, in Romans, right? Like you've, you're under grace, right? Like the law is no longer applies to you. And mm-hmm. things like this where you might say, oh, well, then I can do anything I want. Mm-hmm. So they're saying all things are lawful for me, speaking to probably different, you know, substances, materials, things like that, um, that you can eat other different foods, these kinds of things, uh, those laws are done away with. So they're saying these kinds of things, but he's saying you're missing the point. Mm-hmm. Just because everything's lawful for you doesn't mean everything is helpful right. for you. And we see it's kind of probably a food thing because of verse 13 references food. But he says, food is meant for the stomach, but it's not for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So he's speaking to their appetites, right? Yeah. And especially now it's, we see sexual sin as, as the issue. So the problem is that they are taking a true saying and they're twisting it mm-hmm. and they're using it to engage in sexual morality. Well, all things are lawful for me, so I can just hire a prostitute. No big deal, right? And, and so the answer once again is the gospel. It's yeah. the resurrection. It's that this body is meant for eternity. It's meant to be resurrected. Verse 14 and God raised the Lord and will re- also raise us by his power. Mm-hmm. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. So he's saying this is how serious sexual sin is. Because of the resurrection truth that your body matters and you're going to be resurrected, you have to now live in a way that reflects that. Mm-hmm. So you can't join God Join, join Christ to a prostitute. That would be a horrific thing. 
And so he's calling us to take very seriously how we live because of the resurrection, not the opposite, right? not to ignore it. And again, we see at the end here how the gospel reorients our thinking, verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Right. So the corporate body of the church is a temple, mm-hmm. and now he's saying also individually that that's, that truth is relevant as well, mm-hmm. that Christ, God lives in you. Right. So now we can do the yoga and the eat vegan, <laughs> but, but just, you know, proper verse. Chapter 7, I, I don't want to get into this as much just because there's so many, such a, yeah, a tangled ball of yarn here. Mm-hmm. But chapter 7 that is responding to the question of, uh, of really a couple of questions. So the first one has to do with divorce, and then we'll deal, we'll deal with divorce, singleness, marriage, mm-hmm. all these things. So that, that that's the first question is all related to questions they have about marriage. Mm-hmm. So he's trying to answer them. So here's kind of where we're seeing... You know, first we saw problems he's addressing, and now we're getting into a section of questions that they have. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, how does how does divorce work? How does food sacrifice to idols work? All these right. problems that they have. So Paul's now engaging with that. So he deals here, and it's it is worth reading and to really thinking on. There's a lot of challenging things in this, but he's he's saying to honor God in your sexuality, whether you're single or married, um, or married to an unbeliever. Right. All these all these things are difficult. Chapter eight. Let's look at that. Um, so then he then he answers their next question, which is about food sacrifice to idols. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- this is an important thing in the ancient world, right? Food being sacrificed to idols. Yeah. And what what happened was they the temple during their idol worship they would sacrifice an animal, and they would cook it, and then they would have a little like restaurant or shop out back of the temple mm-hmm. where you could get the meat. Maybe at a little bit of discount, I don't know, and and uh, so this this was a problem, right? Well, that someone might see that and say, "Hey, that meat was sacrificed to an idol," and so you're kind of secondhand engaging in idolatry by eating that, mm. so you can't eat that, right? And so, what's Paul's answer? Well, his, his answer is very simply, "Meat is meat, mm-hmm. just eat it. Who cares?" Yeah. But the caveat would be. The weaker brother thing again, right? right? Yeah. Caring for those who are weaker and being mindful of them, so you don't hurt their conscience, right? So it's similar to Romans fourteen. So we see the principle in verse four. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no god but one. So there's the principle. Okay, so these people are engaging in some fictitious worship mm-hmm. of what is not a god, right? So there's no like inherent power in this meat. Mm-hmm. So don't buy into that. Verse seven, but there's an exception here, right? However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. Mm-hmm. So there's believers in their midst that maybe used to worship idols. And so when they engage in that, it's as if they're worshiping it's the idol. Yeah, and so, so that's a temptation for them. Right. So be, be mindful of them. Verse 9 says, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Mm -hmm. So be mindful of that. Watch out for those who are weak. Uh, Verse 13, he says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, uh, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So if that's the problem, okay, I'll go to these lengths to accommodate you. Yeah. Okay. Now, I think this is important to talk about. So this is is a one-to-one relationship. I think it's it's we have to think about how this would work in terms of the life of the church, 
right? Should we apply certain things? Like if one person is needs something or demands something, should the entire church capitulate to that? Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that's necessarily the case, mm-hmm. right? I think we have to, it's our job as pastors and just as, as Christians, fellow Christians, to help each other, to instruct each other as to what it means to be a weaker brother. Mm-hmm. So, for example, we had you know a lot of debates about masking in the church, right? Right. I mean, how could you not in, in the last two years? Well, some appeal to the weaker brother argument. Mm-hmm. So one challenge with that is uh, that I've always wondered is, well, what if there are two weaker brothers? Mm-hmm. So, so you, you say, hey, I, my conscience is hurt that you, that you don't wear a mask. Remember, remember it was outside at first, right? right? It's like we've been outside for six months. A lot of people are still wearing masks for no real scientific reason. Right. But if some people take their masks off, some might get offended. Right. So should I be like requiring the entire church to? Well, I would say there's actually two weaker brothers. So there's the one who wants the mask, and there's the one who feels like wearing a mask in worship and not connecting with people relationally is harming their faith. Right. So they might both be yeah, having conscience their conscience violated yeah, exactly. for the exact opposite reason. Yeah. So it's not necessarily a simple answer. Um, but also I would say, no, it's our job to when we can and when we have space to instruct those people as to proper behavior as to what what the bible actually says and what we can require of someone else mm-hmm. so to make it simpler if i were to meet with someone one-on-one and i was walking up and they were to say oh you don't have a mask on you put a mask on i would you know rummage through and get my super greasy two-year-old mask on and put it on right. um if it helps that it made them feel better right. i don't care that much right but when it comes to the function of the church we're looking at a very different situation mm-hmm. And there's actually like a real toll to relationships when you your your face is covered, You're right? Regularly requiring that. Yeah. So it just these situations require a lot of wisdom. It's I'm not saying this is an easy thing at all, man. This is a super tough, challenging thing. But I do I would say like if you can accommodate someone in a way that's meaningful to them, in a way that doesn't violate your conscience, yeah. then just understand they're the weaker brother, and that you're just trying to be kind and to not put a stumbling block in front of them by your behavior. I think it's a good distinction between the corporate of the church and the life of the church and the decisions of the leaders in the church and then one-on-one individually. I think it's a good yeah. good way to separate it out because um, we even talked about it, not in a, such a serious thing, but of like, should we use real wine during communion? You know, yeah. We've kind of like talked about that very briefly, you know, and, you know, we chose not to in order to not, you know, offend. That's a corporate choice to yeah. do it as a church, you know, so. Yeah, so if someone came to me and was like, what someone on your staff like you know drank alcohol once you know it's like okay <laughs> well around you we won't drink alcohol if that offends you right but you can't dictate the entire pattern of their life right. by this you gotta exactly. be you, you have to be especially in an age where like you know any picture can come out right so something like that which is not stated in scripture that you can't have a beer or something mm-hmm. um, could become a thing where okay one person now we're putting a policy in the whole church no one can drink alcohol mm-hmm because someone is offended no our job is to teach that person yeah and to help them right but and again to accommodate them when we're in a situation with them yeah but i think that's a good a good distinction to make very good and this question really extends all the way through chapter 10 Mm-hmm. to some degree. So in chapter 9, he again is pointing to his own apostleship and he's he's saying essentially, look at how I have given up my rights mm-hmm. in order to reach others, to accommodate others. I've sacrificed so much. So he goes into why he has the right to earn a living doing ministry. Mm-hmm. In verse 7, right? Um, you know, who plant, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Mm-hmm. Uh, who plants a, a vine or a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? So he's saying, 
you're supposed to partake in the work that you do. Mm-hmm. So I should be earning a living preaching the gospel, but I'm not merely to avoid giving an offense. I want to give up my rights in order to r- save others. Mm-hmm. Verse 19, for though I'm free from all, I have made myself a servant to all yeah. that I might win more of them, right? That's the whole, like, I've become all things to all people. Right. He's not just saying I'm a people pleaser. He's not just saying I'm, you know, a sinful, you know, people pleasing. He's saying I'm I'm okay with laying down my rights in order to share the gospel with people. Right. And, you know, when I go to, to a Jew, I don't, I don't like pull out my my slab of bacon and start eating it, right? Mm. That would inhibit my ability to share the gospel. So he right. knows how to do that. So it's it's a lot of wisdom there. And so at the end, he talks about how Christians should be characterized by self control. Hmm. In chapter ten, we see an interesting example of you know, really Paul kind of comes back to you can actually worship idols. Like the the, the implication could be, oh, idolatry is nothing, so. Let's just let's go to the idolatrous worship service and have a party just knowing it's made up. Well, no, he's not saying that. He's saying these materials are not affected by this, you know, spirituality, but don't be careful still not to engage idolatry. Right. And he has the example of Israel and how they fell to idolatry in the wilderness. Right. And then he also um, he goes to verse four. He says, Therefore, my beloved flee from idolatry. Mm-hmm. And then he starts to talk about how well we we eat the cup of Jesus and we can't eat the cup of Jesus and also or eat drink the cup of Jesus and also drink the cup of demons. Mm. It's like, wait, so is idolatry something or not? <laughs> and here he's saying, No, I, idols, you are worshiping something in the idol, you're worshiping a demon. Um, so don't engage in that. Be really careful about that. Right. But also know, again, there's nothing magical or mystical that happens to these substances because of that. So he says, verse 19, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. Right. I do not want you to be participants with demons. So be be careful and understand idolatry is still a very serious thing. Right, sound wisdom. Yeah, and so, um, so he gets into verse 27. Um, he he kind of clarifies this again, right? If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you, mm-hmm. verse 28, but if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, don't eat it mm-hmm. for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of their kind. They're saying, hey, just so you know, like that's idol worship. Then he's like, well, then don't just show them to be a good witness to them, essentially. So verse 31, the conclusion, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. He's not just talking. We always use that verse out of context in a very general sense. Mm. He's not talking just about general, you know, eating. He's saying specifically in light of idol worship. Right. Do we have time to cover chapter 11? I think a little bit. Two problems here. <laughs> Two problems in this chapter. One is relationship between men and women. Right. And the second is the Lord's Supper. Mm-hmm. So they didn't know how to deal with gender distinctions and this, this symbol of Gender distinctions, which is the head covering, yeah, long hair, sure, yeah. and they didn't know how to deal with the Lord's Supper. So, and they were, you know, engorging themselves in the Lord's Supper. So, in regards to head coverings, we can't cover it all here. And this again, this could be oh. a good extra, extra video. But a head covering was a sign of submission to your husband in that culture. Mm-hmm. And so, the question really is: Should Christians take upon them the signs of culture in regards to gender distinctions? Right. Or should we be more radical feminists? Should we free ourselves from the shackles of these these old systems? And his answer is that these gender distinctions are good and that Christians should reflect in the way they dress and act how the culture uh, you know, distinguishes between male and female. Right. He's not saying take upon yourself all the gender, you know, 
stereotypes of culture. Correct. Yeah. But he's saying women should look and act like women, and men should look and act like men. Correct, yep. So without being able to get into it a lot more right now, that's really the principle. So the issue is not really the outward expression per se, which is the head covering, but the right. principle behind it, right. which is really clear. This is, I mean, if if God is giving a specific command in this passage of what you have to do outwardly, mm-hmm. and this is pretty much unique in the entire New Testament. Mm-hmm. It's it's always about the principle, the heart, the gen, like not you have to wear or do this or that thing. Right. Every time it's speaking to a deeper, bigger truth. Mm. So I think that's what's going on here. And then we see that the problem of the unity of the body and the worship of God in the the uh, Lord's Supper, mm-hmm. and we see the answer again is the gospel. Mm-hmm. Right. This is about God bringing together those who are different right. in one body in His Son. Right. So without much time to cover it, that's kind of the general idea of chapter eleven. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us for Daily Gospel. We'll see you next week for the last part of the book of 1 Corinthians.